Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 99, Take Over the World. That's right, we're all the way up to 99 episodes in just over two years of podcasting, uh, and tomorrow I'll be recording what will be episode 100, an interview with former hyperpreterist Sam Frost, which is kind of appropriate since uh, the impetus that got me to record episode one was uh, the episode that I had recorded for the Preterist podcast uh, for my good friend Dee Dee Warren. Uh, so it's interesting how episodes one and 100 tie together. Anyway, in this episode, you're going to hear part two of my recent interview with Steve Jeffrey, who's the pastor of Emmanuel Evangelical Church in London. And uh, we talked about post-millennialism and its expectation that Christianity will essentially take over the world before Christ returns. In part one, Steve explained to us that God's intention in, in creation, and, and that this is revealed in the creation of Adam and Eve, was that humanity would rule the creation. And he, and he explained to us that through the Abrahamic promise that Abraham would be heir of the world, God unveiled his plan to fulfill that original creation mandate. And he explained uh, why it is that he believes the presently ongoing establishment of Christ's kingdom is one in which, uh, one which the Bible says will virtually take over all of the nations before the return of Jesus. Uh, we also discussed uh, one or two objections to his view, ending part one with his answer to the objection that some have based on their belief that the Bible prophesies that Christians will be an oppressed, persecuted minority until the second coming. And it was at that point that we left off, so let's go ahead and jump right back into the interview. I think it's time for me and you to take over the world. I think it's time for me and you to take over the world. All right, well, I, I don't want to keep, you know, <laughs> going down that road. But, but uh, I do want to give you an, op an opportunity to offer the two more theological arguments that I, that sure, I read yeah. in the papers that you rent me, uh, that you sent me. Uh, the first of which is that according to you, the saved will outnumber the lost. How, how do you think that this is supported by uh, Christology, as, as you explain in your in your papers, and, and, and what you call the asymmetry between God's decrees of election and reprobation? Yeah, great. Well, it, and let's look at those um, one at a time. So what we're trying to do here, we're recognizing that Christian theology is like a jigsaw puzzle, or like a picture where the shape of one part of the picture will necessarily have an impact on adjacent parts and vice versa. Right. So if you're trying to think, okay, should I be pre-mill, a-mill, post-mill? One of the questions you want to ask is, well, what does the Bible say about other aspects of Christian theology and how does that bear on this question? Mm. Christology, for example. The Bible teaches that Christ is a truly glorious king, a majestic king, unlike, far greater than any other king who's ever lived. Proverbs 14.28 says, In a multitude of people is the glory of a king, and without people a prince is ruined. Therefore, what it seems to be saying is, um, to a certain extent, the, the wonder and glory of a king is measured by how many subjects he has, how mm. many people there are who willingly submit to him. And well, we recognize that. All, all of us uh, recognize, let's say, with the president of the United States of America is a more significant figure than the president of Western Samoa. Mm. Um, that's just the way it is, because he has more subjects, and therefore he has a greater responsibility and greater glory in that sense. So if you thought that Jesus was the most glorious king, just a priori, Christology, the glory of Christ, would incline you to think he would have a very great many subjects, certainly more than Satan. Who do you think is the greater king? God or the, the Lord Jesus Christ or the devil, the usurper? Well, obviously the Lord Jesus Christ. So, 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 so just a priori, just, just that theological consideration would incline you to think that, well, Jesus is going to have more subjects than Satan. So that's Christology and one way in which it might have a bearing on this question. Uh, you mentioned also um, God's decree. Um, well, the Bible says that God takes no pleasure in the death of anyone, but there's rejoicing in heaven over every sinner who repents. Mm. So when God in eternity issues his decree of how many to save, he doesn't do it in a dispassionate way. He, he does so in a way um, where accompanying a decree of election and salvation is joy. Uh, but accompanying a decree of um, 
uh, reprobation, passing over somebody so that they're not saved, is sorrow. And God is sorrowful. Um, it's one of the things that the Bible says that God has sorrow over. God takes no pleasure in the death of anybody. And so um, what we'd be, what you've got to sort of think to yourself is, well, is, is God more joyful or more sorrowful? Or perhaps put it another way, what does the Bible say about the kind of relative uh, proportions in which God's attributes are shown in history? Um, God's wrath endures to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him, but to a th his mercy to a thousand generations of those who love him. Can you see there's a kind of, there's a disproportion in favour of his love and his grace and his mercy by about a thousand to three <laughs> against his wrath and judgment. So if, again, just, just considering the matter from this perspective, uh, we're not trying to answer all the questions, sure. but given, given that data, would you expect God to save half? Uh, 1% or 90-something percent. Just just given that data, we'd expect God to save more people because it gives him more pleasure and his grace is greater than his wrath. Mm. Yeah, you know, I think that makes sense. Uh, that having been said, I'm, I think that many of us sure. would, would question the logic of this because of other texts that, uh, that we think might suggest otherwise. And in right. fact, some object to this argument that you've just given, that, that the saved will outnumber the lost, based on texts which seem to imply that a minority rather than a majority of humanity will be saved. So Jesus says, for example, yeah. in Luke 13, 24, that many will seek to enter and will not be able. He says in Matthew 22, 14, that few are chosen. And in Matthew 7, 14, he says, the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Uh, so it's, I, I suspect that it's texts like these that would make us wonder yeah, if yeah. the logic of, uh, behind your previous answer is is correct. Don't, don't these suggest that, contrary to the case you've made, the majority of people will not be saved? Or, or if not, how do you explain those texts? Yeah, well, again, I mean, this is exactly the right way to have a conversation. Um, you recalled our previous um, encounter on the uh, Unbelievable program in uh, Premier Radio, and one of the things that I enjoyed about that was that we were able to get to the Bible, and Justin mm. Briley, the host, was actually willing to let us talk in some detail about text. And your listeners, I hope, have been schooled in this by you, Chris, that it, we, we, don't, we don't do theology in a, in a vacuum. We do it from the Bible. <laughs> yes, the, the Bible tells us what to think. So, so here are these texts. Um, uh, Many will seek to enter and not be able. Few are chosen. The gate is small. The way is narrow. And few find it. So, Steve Jeffrey, what on earth are you talking about? <laughs> um, and, and you say it's good. And now, again... The answer is, what does the text say? What does the text say? It seems to me that in all these three cases, uh, Jesus is talking in a particular situation, particularly to the Jewish people who he's confronted with, and he's saying, for example, many of you will seek to enter and will not be able. Um, few of you are chosen. The gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few of you find it. It's certainly not true in an absolute sense that few find it. You know, 33% of the world's population claiming Jesus as Lord and 11% Christ, uh, evangelical Christian. That's not few. That's millions, it's not absolutely yeah. few. Right? So it's, it's what Jesus is saying is, as everything in the Bible, it, it's conditioned by um, uh, what he's uh, talking about and the people he's talking to. And throughout the synoptic Gospels, particularly and all four Gospels, um, Jesus is talking to an increasingly hostile Jewish audience. Mm. And just think of Mark 3, 6. It, by the early part of the third chapter of the Gospel, people are trying to work out how to kill him. You know, uh, by the fifth or sixth chapter of Luke, they've already tried to throw him off a cliff. You know, the, Jesus met with such hostility from uh, the, his Jewish contemporaries. And Jesus wept. Um, like a mother hen weeps over, no, mother hens, hens don't weep, do they? But she, she, <laughs> he longed to gather Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he says, as a, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you would not. He's talking, this is in Luke 13, he's talking specifically to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen uh, gathers her brood under her wings, but you would not. It's these people, few of them, will be saved. And indeed, that's been the case. Historically, that generation of people in that place at that time, few of them were saved. It doesn't mean that you can generalize that to the rest of the world for all time. Mm. Quite the contrary. So again, it's context. What does the text say? Yeah, you know, I find that answer very plausible. Uh, you know, Jesus said that he came he didn't come to, uh, you know, evangelize to Gentiles. He came to reach uh, Israel, uh, and and then he came in judgment upon that 
that uh, apostate uh, Israel because so few of them yeah. uh, actually believed in him and the leadership uh, rejected him. So, yeah, I, I could see the, the plausibility of that argument. Um, now, the, the other theological argument that you give uh, with which you supplement your overall case is that, as you put it, quote, mm. God's covenantal sanctions are predictable. Uh, tell us about yeah, that. Yeah. Okay, so again, this is a long-term, big-picture view. The Bible teaches that um, God's ways work, pagan ways fail. Mm. Okay, um, the way to life is the way of faithfulness. Uh, the way to fruitfulness is the way of faithfulness. Um, it's the Bible that tells you how to raise your children in such a way that they'll be hardworking and prosperous. Money is a good thing, used wisely and well. Um, uh, children are a good thing, brought up wisely and well. And life is to be enjoyed, and if it's enjoyed wisely, and if we do so in keeping with the teaching of, of the scriptures, we will prosper. Now, it doesn't mean that every single individual Christian will prosper. Far from it. But it means in the big picture, you'd expect God's ways to work and pagan ways to fail. Another way of looking at the same question is just a corollary of the doctrine of creation. Who made the world anyway? If God made the world, God's ways work, and uh, man's ways fail. Um, and it's, it's no accident, therefore, that, to put it bluntly, non-Christians get themselves into a mess. Non-Christians get themselves into a mess because they're not following the Maker's instructions. Flip side, if you averaged over a billion people, those who were following the ways of the Lord you ex would expect to prosper and uh, their children to prosper and to follow them in the faith and so on and so forth. So it's, it's just a way of connecting the doctrine of creation and God's providence to the question of what works in history. And it's talking in terms of God's covenantal sanctions. Well, uh, covenant is just another word for a relationship. Um, the reason that pagan ways fail, the reason that God's ways work, is because God blesses his people and God brings judgment on those who reject him. Uh, and per perhaps we could throw in there the idea of reaping what you sow, right? I mean, if... if, exactly, if exactly. Uh, That's another way of thinking. Yeah, so I mean, if, yeah. if governments are, are uh, sowing... Uh, godly, you know, uh, godly rule, uh, godly leadership, and so forth. You would imagine that that, uh, that they would reap from that and, and would grow. I, I could see right. the, the the logic yeah. behind that. Uh, yeah. One question that did just occur to me, an objection that that I didn't put in the questions I sent you. So hopefully I don't catch you too off guard. Uh, you and I, we've we've talked already about how we both believe that we're in this this uh, thousand year period of time, symbolically speaking, anyway, this indefinitely long mm, period of yeah. time in, in Revelation, at the end of which uh, Satan is released from his binding, whatever that means, and. I'm I'm sure you and I have a particular understanding of that. He, he is released yeah, from yeah. that binding, and he, and he gathers the nations to surround the symbolic camp of the saints, the, the symbolic city. Uh, in what sense, if, if the world is you know 98% Christianized or whatever, and if most, if nearly all of the nations are Christian nations when uh, toward the end of this millennium, um, in what sense could Satan possibly arouse the nations to uh, uh, to uh, persecute the, the saints at, at this final you know? this battle, whatever it represents in the yeah. imagery when Christ returns. Can you explain that at all? Sure, sure, yeah. So again, let's, we're thinking Revelation 20. Um, when the thousand years are ended, Satan's going to be released from his prison, come out to deceive the, the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. So it doesn't seem that he's going to deceive all the nations. He's going to deceive some, which symbolically here are called Gog and Magog. Maybe they will be called Gog and Magog, I don't know. Uh, gather them for battle. Their number will be like the sand of the sea. They're a, they're a kind of... Um, parody or a satire of the people of God who are like the sand of the sea um, and they march up against the city of the camp of the saints and the beloved city so it's a rebellion but it's an unsuccessful rebellion mm. quote fire came down from heaven and consumed them and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were so what this seems to teach, and uh, there'll be some who take a different view, but I could, it's easy to see how you might com conclude with a view that um, towards the end of this period of history we're living in, um, the non-Christian world, driven by the devil, will realise this has gone too far, this is going crazy, and they will unleash some final act of rebellion, uh, attempting to destroy the, the nations of the people of God. Mm. Uh, but that rebellion will be unsuccessful because fire will come from heaven. In a divine act of judgment, God will preserve his people before Jesus returns. So, um, unsuccessful rebellion with no impact on the result, really, at the end of history. Okay. Yeah, and, and for the most part, I, I can buy that. The, the only reason why it would 
you know, I would remain uh, a little skeptical is because, as you just put it, uh, mm. God, you know, fire will come down out of, hev- out of heaven. Uh, God will defeat this this final rebellion and, and, and protect his people. To paraphrase what you said, and yet it would seem to me that yeah. uh, that such a small minority of the of the planet would would be able is would doubtfully uh, would doubt be able to actually pose any sort of threat to the rest of the Christian world. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and if you just think in, um, certainly if you'd been thinking until a few years ago, uh, maybe until the middle of the 20th century, that that would be obvious. But post 9/11. Uh, we know that a small number of people can do a great deal of okay, damage. Okay, fair enough. Okay. Good point. All right. Well, now let's move on because because in addition to these couple of theological arguments that you supplement your argument, your whole overall case with, you also offer some additional biblical arguments for your for your view, beginning with Old Testament predictions of the Messiah's kingdom. What, what do you make of those? Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is um, again. Let's get to the Bible. Um, <laughs> it, it's <laughs> it's it's. Um, uh, we're all agreed, I guess, that in the Old Testament there are many prophecies of a uh, kingdom for the Messiah. The question is, um, does this kingdom, which it seems to encompass the earth, you know, the whole world, does it happen only after Resurrection Day? Is it like a sudden explosion of Messiahship kingdom on Resurrection morning? Or does it come about gradually so that it spreads across the world, culminating in this final explosion of um, rule of Christ after Resurrection Day. Mm-hmm. To put it another way, everyone agrees that the Messiah's rule will be big and visible uh, in the future state, in, in the eternal kingdom, in the new heavens and the new right. earth. Does the, do these predictions indicate that his rule will be extensive before that point? And I think they do. Um, so, for example... In uh, the Psalms, pick a few Psalms, Psalm 22, 47, 72, Isaiah 2, and Micah 4, you get many nations submitting voluntarily to the Lord at a time when distinctive features of the old creation remain, features like death. Um, and it's submission to the Lord. It's not nations being crushed before him. Uh, Psalm 72 is a good example. Um, I agree with my Amil and Premil friends that when Jesus returns on Resurrection Day, um, every knee will bow and, uh, and every king will be brought low before him and will um, be crushed if they've been rebellious towards him and will bring their, uh, their fruits of their reign in submission to the Lord Jesus. However, Psalm 72 indicates that the desert tribes and their kings of Tarshish and the coastlands and Sheba and Seba will bring gifts and voluntarily fall down before him. What seems to be indicated here, it's not... On Resurrection Day, Jesus is going to break the nations with a rod of iron, like in Psalm 2. This is before Resurrection Day. The rulers of nations are going to realize the folly of their ways, and they're going to bring their lives and their ministries, as ministers of of God, that's what uh, civil rulers are, they're going to bring their their ministries before the Lord and lay everything down before him. Um, So, yeah, sorry, go ahead. That's, that's, That's one, if you like, one set of arguments um, from the Psalms and from the prophets. Sure, and you know, I guess the question I would have is, uh, it sounds like there's a certain extent to which that imagery is being taken uh, literally. Uh, and what I mean by that is, yep, it would yep. seem to be conceivable that um, that the imagery of uh, of uh, Gentile kings coming to uh, the mountain of the Lord and, and and you know offering gifts and stuff. This imagery, it seems to me, could communicate uh, the spread of the gospel such that an increasing number of mankind believes. But but I'm not sure if that if you could take the next step to say that this imagery communicates that in fact kings will submit their uh, their their rule. Uh, over their nations to Christ. I mean, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah I understand what you're saying. My, I guess my response is, why wouldn't you think that? The text says kings. You know, the, te- the Lord is perfectly capable of saying individual people from certain mm-hmm. nations yeah. will come to him. You know, I've, I've, there are 7,000 in Israel that haven't bowed the knee to Baal, Elijah, so don't worry. He doesn't mention the king there. He says there's these 7,000 people. Mm-hmm. Which, so God can distinguish between the king of a nation and his subjects when he wants to. Um, here he mentions kings, but, but more than that, um, there are some uh, Old Testament prophetic texts where it's specifically talking about nations. Uh, Daniel chapter 2, for example, uh, or the whole the, 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 um, section of Daniel, the Aramaic section from uh, chapter 2 to chapter 7, um, uh, are a series of visions which are about the uh, the conquest of 
the kingdom of God. But notice the form the conquest takes. It, the, the rock that becomes a mountain, the rock that's crushed the feet of the other statues and so on and so forth, the rock that becomes a, statue, a mountain that fills the earth, displaces the other kingdoms. Mm. It doesn't merely coexist with paganism. It's not just that you get Christians kicking around and there are more Christians, but basically it's a pagan world. No, the rock has become a mountain and it's filled the whole earth. And there's no space for anything else left. Um, so as the gospel expands, it drives out all the enmity which remains opposed to it. And when you put that in, in line with all the other stuff that the text is saying in Daniel and in those other prophets, it's nations that it's talking about. It's this kingdom, and then this kingdom, and then this kingdom, the four parts of the statue, and the rock lands on the feet, crushes them all, displaces them, grows, and fills the whole earth. It's like, again, you get similar imagery in, in the New Testament, in the par parables of Jesus. Um, the mustard seed starts small, and it grows. And you know, mustard seeds don't normally grow so big. You ever realize that? Mustard bushes are quite small. This is a miraculous must mustard mm. bush, which grows, and its trees push other stuff out of the way. Yeah, you, you, you can't have trees growing underneath trees. You see that in, a rain, in the rainforest when a tree falls down and all the other things rush to take the, the space and you end up with one tree there. You don't get trees growing underneath because they have no light. There's, the, this tree, like the rock that becomes a mountain and fills the earth, will displace everything else. And so it seems to me that it's best to see, uh, just as the text says, the text is talking about kings and kingdoms which means that it's not just individual people, though it is that, it's the wider social structures of the world and of human society, which Jesus will be bringing in submission to himself. Yeah, I understand. You know, I, I was going to object to that because because of our... Uh, <laughs> The, the topic of the discussion that we had on Unbelievable, I've been spending a lot of time in Revelation and, and, and connecting it uh, with my uh, understanding as a preterist. And, you know, yeah, I, yeah. I, I suspect that you and I would, would to some extent, agree that the, that the, the beast, yeah. the beast in Revelation, which is probably the fourth beast of Daniel 7, and it's probably the, 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 toe, the feet and toes of Daniel 2, you know, these are all communicating the same events. And, and this beast in Revelation uh, is is thrown into this fire as the saints begin reigning, which again is, is very similar to the imagery that we see in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. And the question I've been asking myself as you were just explaining is, in what sense was Rome, first century Rome, displaced as a govern as a government, uh, you know, when, when uh, the saints began to reign? Um, because obviously yeah. Rome did continue to... Uh, uh, did continue to exist, did continue to rule, and did continue to rule in an ungodly yeah, yeah, fashion yeah, yeah. for some time after that. However, I suspect, and you can correct me if I'm wrong or if you want to elaborate, I, I would suspect that you would respond by saying, you know, Rome did begin a process of Christianization, which, you know, I mean, everybody's familiar mm -hmm. with Constantine and the Council of Nicaea and yep. so forth. And so if what you're saying is that the displacing begins then... And takes and, and the displacement, the takeover of this of this kingdom that that was displaced in Daniel two and in Daniel seven and in Revelation twenty, uh, that displacement began, but it took a while. I could buy that. Is yes. that what you would say? Something along those lines? Yeah, I, I, I think so. And I'd go further and say that the uh, remember what I said before about um, riding a mountain bike uphill. Mm. It comes in fits and starts, um, and both. Um, spatially or geographically in a, in a certain fixed area it, you, the kingdom of Christ could grow and expand and dominate a nation and then die down and also temporarily over a period of time you could have a period of great growth and then because of unfaithfulness the kingdom dies and those who are faithful form the seed of the next kingdom mm. and it's, it's almost like a sawtooth pattern um, so the you know you go up gradually then crashing down and up gradually and crashing down and this is happening over different time scales in different parts of the world so that in these little local areas as as the gospel grows in Southgate where I minister at Emmanuel it's gradually gradually displacing unbelief from before it and at the same time um, over human history you've got this gradual inexorable displacement of secular and ungodly uh, thinking and social structures as the gospel grows but then all that can be put into reverse um, just as in Britain uh, again during the Reformation period the the Protestant reformed faith replaced what was there before medieval Catholicism mm. it, it, there wasn't anywhere for it to coexist but it just didn't last long 
and came crashing down again, uh, or at least partially crashing down again, sometime later. So, in other words, we've got a, a complicated picture of these events going on all over the world, across time, on different time scales, but with the overall picture being a picture of growth, which is, in terms of history, if you were just doing this argument on the basis of history, which I don't want to do, I want to do it on the basis of the Bible, but if you're just trying to predict what religion is going to win, <laughs> you just, it's a, a no-brainer. You know, the, the uh, Bible-believing Christian faith is winning. I see. Period. So, so this sawtooth uh, pattern would would that be a response to uh, the objection that some would level, which is that. Uh, they say that the, that the facts of history reveal a bleak picture of increasing moral degeneration and increasing disbelief in Christianity. Would, would, would you say that to whatever extent that is a uh, accurate view of the, the, the state of history right now, that this is one of those downward, brief downward trends in what otherwise would have been an overall upward trend throughout the past 2,000 years? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And I'd also say uh, to somebody who believes that, you want to get on the internet a bit more often. <laughs> <laughs> and and you know, where do you live? I mean, if, if you live in, um, let's say, North Yorkshire, in the north of England, I can easily imagine that you'd be pretty despondent, because you might have to drive 50 miles to find a Bible-believing mm. church. So, so um, just um, go, go to the Keeper for Christ website, um, or go and find out about, go and get Operation World, or go and find out about Christians in China, and, or Christians in Brazil and Chile, um, find out about where the gospel is making great advances. Yeah. And we need to not be so parochial and myopic about, about our perspective on the world. Sometimes our own little local area comes to dominate our perspective. And one of the great privileges of being a Christian is I'm one with those um, pastors in uh, Cuba, and I'm one with you guys over in the States and people everywhere else. And as a church, we're all one body. And of course, some parts of the body are suffering. Other parts are experiencing growth and uh, great blessing from the Lord. Uh, but the overall picture is that the body of Christ is growing. Yeah, yeah I, could, I could see that. You know, it, it's funny. I, I wonder if this objection does tend to come from uh, American critics of post-millennialism because it is often we Yankees that are uh, uh, that, that are accused <laughs> of having a myopic view of, <laughs> of the world and, and not well, considering how things are going in the rest of the world. But you're absolutely right. You know, the, uh, <laughs> I, I suspect that Christians... I'll let, you, I'll let you take the flack on that I'm one, I'm sorry? <laughs> I'll let you take the flack for that one, Chris. Um, <laughs> well, I, but, well, yeah, I was just going to say, I, I suspect that, uh, that Christians in places where the gospel is spreading and growing uh, would probably be a little offended that, that we that you know we Christians in America and perhaps in other places of the world are assuming that the circumstances we face are being experienced by Christians all over the globe. That would be a little, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, That's whatever. Right. We've had, I mean, this is, just to talk more about this, because in one sense it's an encouragement, I think. Um, we are privileged to be uh, one of a large number of churches and ministries that partner with Cuba for Christ, which is a... Uh, a ministry in Cuba, and it's been just astonishing to hear about how the gospel has grown there. And just in, just some raw statistics, numbers of baptisms. We had some visitors over from Cuba, and we actually happened to have a, a baptism taking place, which is kind of a big event for us as a church. Mm. It doesn't happen that often. They have them all the time, all the time in Cuba. Um, and you know, they baptize one small church will baptize 600 people a year. <laughs> it's just absolutely. It's a, and that's an indication of people coming to faith and being committed to Christ, because in Cuba you'd have sure. to be baptized. Yeah, believer. absolutely. And, and you know, I, I'm reminded of a video I watched a couple of years back. I, I, I wish I could remember the name of the African country that this is describing. Maybe you'll recall. But if yeah. I recall correctly, there, there was there, there was an African country that was riddled with uh, with AIDS, for example, and uh, the government basically became a Christian government and something as serious and, and as uh, viral as AIDS became increasingly on the, the decline because of the way that the, the, this new Christian government had, um, uh, you know, the, the things that they began promoting and the things they began teaching had an effect on the rest of the population. Right. To, to suggest right. that, that to, to include that nation's experience in, in saying that the overall picture of history right now is one of moral decline, I, I suspect they would they would probably object to that. <laughs> yeah, 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 you're right. Yeah. And, and we, I mean, the, again, just to pick up that, that there, okay, there's a, there's a way of saying this which is insensitive, okay, and that's not how I mean <laughs> it. But let's be honest about it. AIDS, you, you could um, obliterate AIDS in a generation by just doing what that's the Bible right. says. Okay, of course there are some people who uh, receive are infected with AIDS in the womb. They receive infected blood products. 
Um, they are married to a man who is unfaithful, and so on and so forth. They receive infected drug treatments from infected needles and so on. But AIDS in Africa, you could wipe it out in a generation by uh, guys not sleeping right. around. Simple. And so that's just another way of saying God's ways work and pagan ways yeah. fail. And put it most starkly, um, if you want to die, disobey the Bible. <laughs> yeah. Really, really. Um, now that's not meant to be crass, uh, and forgive me if that's upset somebody, then get in touch with me, okay, and let's talk about it. But um, uh, we need to be clear about uh, unbelief kills. Yes. Unbelief kills. And the gospel and the law of Christ brings life. That's right. Not only contempt or not only the, uh, uh, hypothetically speaking, but it happens frequently throughout the yeah. world historically. Um, well, now you offer two further biblical arguments for your view, and one of them is based on 1 Corinthians 15 and the destruction of God's enemies. Explain that for us. Well, this is um, you know you know how some Bible texts hold a special place mm. in your heart because they have a kind of you can remember the day when it when it hit you. Um, I I um, I came to this conviction about um, post-millennial eschatology as a result of a kind of theological arguments, um, and and with some arguments that I didn't include in the material I sent you, Chris, but about the the character of public theology and political life mm. and so on. And so I, I had the, this overwhelming weight of theological pressure and this big nagging question in my mind, which was, where are the Bible mm. texts? <laughs> um, I, I, I kind of knew that if, if, if this view was right, there must be texts which taught it clearly. And I don't know how I'd missed them for so long. And 1 Corinthians 15 was the first one that dawned on me. Let me just read what it says um, in, um, from about verse 23 or so. This is talking, Paul is talking about um, what's going to happen uh, when all are made alive, is his phrase. Verse 23, each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, and that I believe is when Jesus comes in glory, in the resurrection, those who belong to him. So when Jesus comes at the resurrection, he's going to bring with him those who belong to him. We all knew that already. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, quoting Psalm 110. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now let's just think about this. What's the last enemy? Death. The last enemy is destroyed at the resurrection. Mm. Which must mean that by then, all the other enemies will already have been destroyed. It's not the, the, the first enemy to be destroyed is death at the resurrection and then Jesus puts down all these ungodly nations that are opposed to him. Quite the contrary. Before Jesus comes in glory, before the resurrection, every other enemy must be subjected to him. And then, quote, verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And that's supported by the previous verse, which again, as I mentioned, is a quote from Psalm 110. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Um, Psalm 110 actually says, it doesn't have the word all until he has put his enemies under his feet. This suggests, therefore, that the time of his reign has already begun at the time Paul is writing, when he's writing in the 60s or so, when he's writing 1 Corinthians, which is, again is supported by Acts chapter 2. So Acts chapter 2 quotes Psalm 110, uh, this is Peter's speech, quotes Psalm 110 to talk about the reign of Christ, which began with the ascension and exaltation and enthronement of Christ. So Christ is reigning from about AD 30 onwards. He's reigning, he's reigning. Paul says he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. All the evil powers and all the sin that is opposed to him all over the world will be put beneath his feet. Then comes the end at the resurrection when the last enemy will be destroyed, death. And so just to bring all that together, to summarise it, it seems to me that this teaches that before Christ comes in glory, the resurrection, before he comes in glory, all of the other enmities which are opposed to him, all his other enemies, will already have been destroyed. Which must mean that uh, the vast majority of people are converted, social structures and nations and ways of life all around the world are Christian. So that if a visitor were to come from Mars, they would still be able to find some non-Christians. Okay? But they would look at the world and they would say, okay, this is a Christian place. Like a family, if you go to a family gathering and there are 50 people there and 48 of them are Christians, you say, this is a Christian family non-Christians have been, have sort of disappeared off the scene here. I think that's what the world is going to be like, and that's what this text seems to okay, say. Okay, well, let me first, I want to I want to throw a wrench in that and, and see what you, you think, but before mm. I do, I want to 
I want to say that you know much of what you said has been very persuasive, and, and, and so I, I don't say this as if this would challenge the entirety of your argument, okay? Uh, uh, sure. But 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 you know <laughs> we did talk a, a little bit ago, ago about how um, our understanding of the, the present uh, thousand years is such that at the end uh, some number of uh, unbelieving armies will will be you know attempt to a one last final ditch effort you know uh, to yeah the great last right Pakistan, exactly yeah. and fire will come down of he- out of heaven and destroy them now just hypothetically speaking uh, well, well even before I get to what I was about to ask that that fire that comes down out of heaven presumably would be would destroy whatever remaining unbelievers there are and then the resurrection would happen and that would be the destruction of the final enemy that is death if if that's true hypothetically speaking couldn't it be a much greater percentage than what we've been talking about this these this final group of enemies if that if that Let's say it was 98% unbelieving of the world. If all 98% of those were destroyed by this fire that comes down out of heaven, and then the resurrection happens, destroying the final enemy of death, uh, wouldn't that still fit the the language of 1 Corinthians 15? Yeah, you're right. So it it wouldn't fit the rest of the picture that I've been painting. I I don't think it would... um, Well, just just to return to what you were saying about um, Revelation uh, 20, um, this is an unsuccessful rebellion. So the presence of this rebellion doesn't indicate the presence of a large number of people. It, if we're to take it in the way that I described earlier, it indicates a, a kind of a final last-ditch effort which fails. Well, but but it fails because of but, 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 fire coming down but, out of but, heaven, but, not not the church. Right. Okay. Um, and yeah. So so then let's pick up the detail. What you're saying, I don't think that failure would necessarily imply the death of every single mm. Christian. Okay. When we read or in the Bible or when we read the whole world in the Bible, those kinds of um, phrases which are intended to indicate totality. In fact, not just in the Bible. Whenever we read, uh, use a phrase intended to indicate totality, it doesn't necessarily mean every single individual. Um, uh, If you you look at a a flower bed, which is just ablaze with colour, full of daffodils, bright yellow flowers, and you say, oh, look, all the daffodils are in bloom. You don't literally mean that you've inspected every single last um, stem just to make sure whether the bulb at the end of it has opened up. You just, it's a phrase intended to indicate the overwhelming totality sure. of what you see before you. So I think, again, that, that's the case here. Um, when you say, you know, if every one of those people is Christian, if, if every nation under heaven is being converted, oh, maybe there's one or two that aren't. And just in the way that we use language, this is the important point, just in the way that we use language, um, when we say all, every, the whole of something, um, what we tend to mean, strictly speaking, is the overwhelming proportion of it. And that's all I'd want to claim. I'm not claiming that everybody will be Christian. I'm not claiming that every non-Christian would be killed in the fire that comes down from heaven in Revelation 20. But merely that, to use that analogy again, um, if, if, you, if you had a, um, an alien visit from another planet... Um, he would say the sort of thing that you might say if you visited um, uh, a family at Christmas time and the whole family is together and they were 95% of them are Christians. You'd say, this is a Christian family. And I think that it makes most sense of the text of 1 Corinthians 15 to say the same thing about the world. This is a Christian world. Okay. Enemies, the enemies of Christ have been defeated. Jesus has returned to a world which wants him back. Okay. Okay, well, the, the next question that I had for you was about the Great Commission and about how it, you know, talking about disciples of all nations, not people from all nations. But we have, we've addressed that already. So because I don't want to take up even more of your time, and we could spend hours, you know, talking about this, I'm sure, uh, let's begin to wrap up. Um, theology matters, and what we believe has consequences. Not every mistaken understanding of Scripture is as serious as others, of course. But if you're right, and I stress that, if, because I don't want to give the impression that I accept your case yet, although I have found it somewhat uh, compelling. If you're right, how important is it to affirm post-millennialism? Does this issue matter all that much, practically speaking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, yeah, I just affirm everything you said just there straight up front. So, yes, theology matters. Um, and yet, at the same time, the subtext of what you're saying, this is, um, this is not an issue to die in a ditch over. Okay, uh, eschatology has never been a creedal issue in the history of the church. It's been a confessional issue um, here and there, I think, but it's never been a creedal issue. The only creedal aspect has been the resurrection of 
Jesus and the resurrection of the body, the future resurrection of the body. And that we must, okay, that's, that's clear, and to deny that is really serious. But eschatology, amill, postmill, premill, I, I think it's the sort of thing to have this kind of conversation about. And moreover, to go away from this kind of conversation, committed just to look again at the Bible and to, to think things through. I, I would say, though, one thing about the implications of this view. Um, I think postmillennialism helps spirituality because it cultivates, or rather it encourages the cultivation of a kind of, in the right sense, a relaxed, cheerful disposition to the mm. world. Um, I, I don't see Jesus terribly stressed by all the unbelief around him. I see him you know, single-mindedly and uh, determinedly um, experiencing the persecution that he knew would await him, but cheerfully enjoying the good things of God's creation with his disciples and his close friends. Um, and I think that's a good demeanour to have. Now, if you think the world is going down the tubes... To um, hell in a handbasket. In a handbasket, <laughs> right? <laughs> then, uh, and if you think that Jesus is coming soon, and if you think that... Uh, then there's, the, there's a danger of that eschatology fostering a kind of hyperactivism. Mm. Now, I don't think this, this is um, going to be... This shouldn't be decisive about what eschatology one believes, but it, I think these are corollaries of what you choose, and they're things to be wary of. If... Uh, because I think post-mill eschatology is true, let me put it like this, because I think post-mill eschatology is true from the Bible, that means it's easier for me to adopt what I think is a Christian, Christ-like attitude to hostility, to opposition, um, to criticism. Uh, every Christian and certainly every Christian minister will experience criticism. And I just think you know, this is uh, part and parcel of the way things go and things will get better, things will get sorted out in the end. There's not a disposition of panic stations, the ship's mm. going down. Um, and so it encourages that kind of... Uh, it, it makes it easier for someone who is inclined to be a control freak like me not to be. Um, <laughs> and in practical terms as, as well, maybe this is a second issue. Um, if you think that Jesus isn't going to be coming back any day soon, then that acts as uh, a stimulus to what one might call culture-building activities, <laughs> yeah. right? So, um, I mean, actually, this is a wider subject, which is worth discussing. Um, let me, let's think about this for a second. If you think that Jesus could, could come back tomorrow, and you have a thousand pounds spare in your church budget, where are you going to send it? What are you going to do with it? The likelihood is you're going to spend it on mm. evangelistic uh, ministries, possibly on Bible teaching, Bible training ministries, but something where you can really quickly see some kind of retur likely return on investment. Because you know, if you if you do something else with it, that's going to take ten years to come to fruition. Well, Jesus could have returned by then. And if you think Jesus is coming back any day now, then you're definitely not going to invest for the future. Uh, you, you might not even invest for your um, pension. <laughs> not that's an issue here. But um, however. If you thought there are good Christian theological reasons to expect that Jesus isn't coming back in our lifetime, okay, he's got to show faithfulness to a thousand generations, and we haven't had a thousand generations since the flood yet, so okay, we, he's not, not coming back anytime soon, um, then that means that that thousand pounds, what are you going to do with it? You might think, well, let's save it up, or save some of it, save a thousand pounds, half of it, 500 pounds, um, and let's... In, uh, put it towards the construction of a Christian school. Or let's put it to support the work of Christians in the media, or Christians in politics, or even Christian artists. I mean, obviously you're going to still want to prioritise things like the salvation of your next-door neighbour. I'm looking out my office window here, the, the guy lives next door to me, and, um, you know, and the people who live down the street. Um, but the vast majority of the area here is... Uh, unevangelized and unchristian, and there's got to be a big priority there. But if a post-mill eschatology will tend to incline one more to long-term kingdom activities, uh, culture-building, creation-mandate things, actually, to return to the vocabulary of, we used in connection with Genesis 1. Um, and I think that's biblical, and I also mm. think it's healthy. Um, Christian education, Christian colleges and universities and schools... Um, uh, to help Christian artists and Christian engineers and scientists 
um, Christian lawyers and Christian politicians. We are privileged in my part of the world to have an evangelical Christian member of parliament. Not many people in Britain <laughs> can say that. Um, to support and encourage him, uh, as David Burroughs MP, to support and encourage him uh, is a wonderful thing to do. And you're not likely to do it if you think Jesus could come back before lunchtime. At least not consistently. You, <laughs> you know, and exactly, exactly. That's and I want, I want to say that yeah. personally, as as somebody who withholds, you know, or who, who remains a po uh, an amillennialist at, at this point, uh, I think much of what you said could apply to an amillennialist perspective as well that doesn't know when Christ is, you know, doesn't necessarily expect it to be soon or or distant. But but I do want to add to right. what you said, yeah. you know, talking about the cultural transformation. I mean, look, in, in America, when we're fighting. Um, uh, when we're fighting for the, the rights of the unborn, uh, or if or if we're fighting right, for exactly. um, fighting against the legalization of same-sex marriage, or any of a host of other very important biblical social issues, if if I were to expect that Christ is going to return at any moment, in fact, very 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 soon, why would I even invest any effort in trying to transform the government? Why why right. would I waste any effort trying to encourage my yes, politicians yes, yes. to vote uh, against uh, the freedom of abortion and and so on and so forth? It it seems to me that. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to take any uh, wind out of your sails and say that this doesn't better support postmillennialism mm. than amillennialism. But at the very least, it does seem that these two views uh, are, are views in which we as Christians are more likely to invest in these numerous ways in which we would like to transform the society, precisely because we don't necessarily yes. expect Christ to return at any moment. Uh, and so I, I, yeah, I just want to say so. I absolutely agree with you. I do think that this has uh, practical uh, practical implications. Yeah. That's right. I mean, and what you said, I mean, particularly about the vulnerable, so um, the unborn, victims of abortion, um, and the poor. Mm. Um, again, I've, I've got many uh, great friends who are uh, ministers or Christians in and churches in the UK, and there's a kind of um, discomfort in their hearts, I think, about should we care for the poor? Because frankly, every pound spent um, to ease the situation of a poor non-Christian who comes into your church fellowship is a pound not spent on evangelism. Let's be blunt about it. You can't spend the same <laughs> dollar twice. So um, w there's a kind of discomfort because, and here's the key, the Bible says mm. care for the poor. And of course it says particularly the family of believers, but that just changes the particular form of the question. What are you going to do? There's people in every church in this country that I can imagine um, on yeah. the breadline. People losing jobs, um, people who need financial help. Um, what are you going to spend your time doing? Are you going to spend your time as a minister or as a Christian or whatever it is you're doing um, on evangelism and nothing else? Or do you see a biblical mandate for caring for the poor, um, on uh, looking after the weak, the vulnerable, and culture building in other ways? Now, obviously there's a biblical mandate for those things. Now, what eschatology fits that biblical mandate? I can see how if you're an Amil and you don't believe in an imminent return of Christ, that your position, Chris, that would, that would fit. Post-millennialism, though, uh, adds one, one crucial thing. It adds this, that um, this activity of culture building is part of the goal mm. of evangelism. Yeah? So you read Genesis 1, we've got to fill and subdue the earth and provide for people and make the world a beautiful place. Sin enters the world in Genesis chapter 3, right, and evil enters the world, and we've got to deal with sin and the devil. And part of the goal of dealing with sin and the devil is precisely so you can do Genesis 1. Yeah. So what I say to people, uh, well, I had a conversation just like this a few weeks ago uh, after church. Um, what, should, what should you do if a guy in the street asks you for money? And I said to people, you know what I'd do? I'd say, I'm not going to give you anything, but if you come to church on Sunday, I promise we will help you. Because I think it's the goal of evangelism to change the world in mm. that kind of way. And what I'd hope is that this guy on the street or who's got um, whatever problems he has that means that he's not in work during the day, he's, got, he's out begging for money, um, he would experience the love of Christ through the church, which would ease his physical needs in the short term. I would hope, and we would be praying, that he'd come to Christ as a result of that witness. But I wouldn't see those two in conflict because I think they're all part of what you might call the, the creation mandate, what God made the world for. He made the world so that people would worship him, which now entails evangelism. And he made the world so that people who worship him would fill it and subdue it and bring it to glory and fruitfulness, which is what we're trying to do when we engage in these kinds of social uh, ministries and ministries to the poor and the vulnerable and okay. marginalized. All right. Well, if, for those of us like myself who you know might not yet be completely sold, but, but nevertheless do find it, you know, 
You're no, sold already, Chris. You're sold I'm already. We'll come enough. back. <laughs> we'll do this in a year's time. But, but I am. <laughs> He's a tough nut to crack. Chris Date is well, a tough nut to crack. In some areas, perhaps, <laughs> and maybe not others. I don't know. But 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 for those of us who, who did find your case at least somewhat compelling, what other authors and resources would you recommend for listeners who uh, who want to learn more about postmillennialism? Uh, okay. Well, I mean, uh, let me give you a roll call of ancient greats. Uh, so uh, uh, John Owen. Uh, is is great. Um, you know, Am- Americans such as Charles Hodge, um, people like uh, Dabney and Shedd and Warfield um, uh, were post mill. Um, uh, there are more r- recent works by um, uh, uh, Kenneth Gentry. Uh, it's written a good but very detailed and slightly exhausting <laughs> uh, book. Um, Ke- Keith Matheson. Again, uh, that's easier to read. Gentry is the comprehensive one, and um, but in in terms of in terms of the difference that postmillennialism makes, I mean, we brought this up a moment ago in terms of culture and piety. Um, there's some great stuff by um, James Jordan, Peter Lightheart. You've had Jim Jordan on Gentry your program, well. I think, or yeah, yeah, Ken Gentry. So James Jordan, Peter Lightheart, Douglas Wilson, Douglas Jones about building. Christian culture. So there's a great book, Angels in the Architecture by Doug Jones and Doug Wilson, or um, if, if you like a laugh, Against Christianity by Peter Lightheart is a superb book, which is a kind of quite uh, polemical and at times tongue-in-cheek uh, picture of what the church's job is. Um, and Doug Wilson has written a whole bunch of stuff on the family and on church life, which gives a, a picture of the sort of society that you'd be striving for um, in order to live out the creation mandate, the, to, to live in the sort of way that God wants us to live. So those guys, I would say, are great. Um, it was Gentry's book that I was working through when I was persuaded, so I owe a debt of What is the name of that book? Him. His book is uh, Kenneth Gentry. Um, oh, <laughs> no, I can't remember the name of the book. Um, but uh, your, your listeners will, I'm sure, be able to find it. Uh, if, you, if you just look on Amazon, uh, Kenneth Gentry, post-millennialism, um, that's certainly in the title. Um, and I think it might be free online as a PDF by now because it's okay. quite an old one. Um, that's comprehensive. It's not one to read on the train or on the plane. It's one to sit down at a desk with a pen and piece of paper. Um, uh, but above all, uh, as we've said before, Chris, it's with an open Bible. Um, and it's trying to think, what, what does the Bible say that God is doing in history? What does the Bible say that God is doing in history? That's the question to ask. And um, we all believe that Jesus is going to win in the end. Post-millennialism believes that Jesus is going to win before the end. I see. Okay. Is it okay for my listeners to contact you with questions if they have any? And if so, how can they get in touch with you? Sure. Sure. Well, um, Emmanuel Evangelical Church is where I minister. Um, Our website is northlondonchurch.org, northlondonchurch.org. And um, I'm Steve at northlondonchurch.org. Yeah, feel free to get in touch, and I will try and respond as, uh, as much as I can. And... If you're ever in the UK and if you're looking for a church in South London, then uh, please check us out. Um, we will be delighted to see you. We have visitors coming every week and new people joining us. And we are always encouraged by people who drop in even for just a week or two. So please come along. Uh, and again, Chris, it's been great to uh, chat with you. And um, I hope for more of this. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. And if I ever make my way to London, I'll be sure to stop. Later, so <laughs> thanks for your time today. All right. Pleasure. God bless. Bye now. Well, there you have it. That was my interview with Steve Jeffrey on post-millennialism, and I hope that it has spurred you to investigate the issue further like it has me. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Theapologetics Podcast with former hyperpreterist Sam Frost. Until then...